I really doubt if there's anybody in this room that I that will not fit into the this statement that you desire the very best possible life you can have. I mean, if you are if that does not describe you, then please let's talk because there's something going on inside of your head that we need to talk about that's not healthy. I think there's just something innate inside of us that we desire a good life. We desire a good family, a good job, a good a good marriage. We desire a good life. And um, sometimes, though, I'm afraid we might be near it or around it and miss it. We might be living in it but not tapping into it. That would be probably one of the greatest fears. Uh, maybe the first greatest fear is that you would actually be pursuing the good life leaning your ladder against a wall, climbing that ladder, going through all the motions of getting to the top of that ladder, knowing good well at the top of that ladder is the good life, only to get to the top of the ladder and realize that you've got your ladder leaning against the wrong wall. That would be a life's disappointment, that you would go through the motions and go through all the energy and spend all the time and effort to find yourself leaning against the wrong wall. I think maybe the second tragedy would be that you would literally live your life right next to, close to, in proximity to what would be a very fulfilling and complete life, but yet somehow miss it. That literally you're within arm's reach of it, and you miss it. And again, a a very disappointing life that would be, and not a good life that I would classify it. Charles Handy, in in his book, The Hungry Spirit, he calls the age in which we live this age of unreason. And it's unreason because in the midst of all the advancements that we have, yet there are indicators in our society. This is a Harvard professor who has is, who is declared that this day is a day of unreason because in the midst of all of our accomplishments, somehow some of the qualities of life that make for a good life are deteriorating. Whenever you look at this, you find that 42% of those working adults feel used up by the end of the day. 69% would like to live a more relaxed life. Life is full of stress and and sound and fury and and can't get their arms around it. Parents spend 40% less time with their children than they did 30 years ago. But the per capita consumption in the last 20 years has risen 42%. We are consuming so much more, while the quality of life as measured by the index of social health has decreased 41%. Now, what an ironic statistic to find such a turning that we would literally consume more 42%, but yet in the midst of our consumption, 41%, we've decreased in the quality of our life. Got our ladders against the wrong wall? Very possible. Only 22% of young people today think that they will achieve the good life compared to 41% 20 years ago. What is it about all of the sound and fury and development and advancement of our culture and our day and our age? It is truly a day of unreason that it doesn't make sense that we are pursuing the good life and yet in all of our consumption and all of our development and all of this, do we really have what would be classified as a good life? When you put it into some mathematical equation, it may look something like this. Advancement plus development plus greater wealth plus speed but yet you take out rest, you take out reflection, 
You take out family. What do we have? I think we have less of a good life. And yet we have all of this going on around us. And so I would hope that in this study through the book of Ephesians that will take us at least 18 messages to get through of understanding maybe a little bit more in depth doctrinally and in depth practically what it means to live and know the good life. And that we can define it, understand it, and charge ahead and and grab a hold of it. That we would not be disappointed, disillusioned in the end. We started last week, part one of a part two message that I want to conclude today. And if you were here with us last week, then you were here for the very first part of Ephesians chapter one. And and I can't relive that message, obviously, today, but I do want to just point out some of the some of the context in which we're dealing with is as Paul writes to the believers in Ephesus, he's writing to them and immediately jumps into worship. It's almost like I can't contain it. It comes out. It's just there. All right. And he talks about blessing God and in this doxology of blessing to God. He tells why he blesses God. And he tells us why in verse 3, because he said, Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Jesus. Or, excuse me. He has blessed us in the Lord. Uh, excuse me. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. The word blessing, blessing, blessing all throughout. And that this, this blessing towards God is because he has been blessed by God. And that in the, the key parenthetical statement that I want us to zero in on is what does it mean to be blessed by God? Because I think if we tap into that, then we've tapped into what it means to understand and maybe possibly begin that journey of the good life. If we don't get there, if we don't get to the, to the base of it all, then I think we miss it. And so then what he does is for the next 202 words in the Greek language, he begins to just go on and on and on into this praise, into this doxology to God. It's broken up, some call it, into three different stanzas. Verses 3 to 6 give us the first stanza. And each stanza ends with a similar phrase. It ends in verse, uh, it ends in, uh, in, in, in the verse 6. It says, to the praise of His glorious grace. And then it goes into stanza 2, verse 7 to verse 12, if you're outlining this, this section of Scripture. And in verse 12, it ends with a similar phrase, to the praise of His glory. And then it comes to the third stanza of this praise to him, this, this hymn declared to God. And we don't know if they sang it. We don't know if it was just a poetic statement that he writes out. But then if you were reading along in the third stanza, verse 13 and 14, it ends with the phrase, unto the praise of his glory. So you see again and again it coming back to God has blessed us. That blessing has resulted in a blessed life. And in that blessed life, it produces a praise and glory. To God. So this thing that we do here on Sunday morning actually fits into the economy of God. It fits into His plan. That it, it should become as a natural overflow of our hearts and our lives because we're living the good life. Because of that. So we talked about last week, how has God blessed us? If He's blessed us, blessed us, blessed us so many times, as Paul has said here, how has He blessed us? And the first way He blessed us, as we talked about last week, is that We are chosen by God. None of us are here by accident. None of us became followers of Christ on accident. It was was an actual initiation of God where He began something in us, where He started the call, where He initiated that. And if there was nothing 
that I can do in this world or, or, or any world or in this life or any other life that I might try to live out. There's nothing I can do to make God love me anymore. And the beauty is there's nothing I can do that can cause God to love me any less. Now that right there is just a blessed statement unto its own. The fact that I can't alter by my lifestyle the fact that God loves me and has chosen me. He just chose me. And it says in Scripture, He chose me before the foundation of the world. Put your arms around that one. Before Adam and Eve, before Cain and Abel, before anybody, He knew your name. That's the, the infant, that's, that is the infinity of God. That He is so way beyond us. But yet... Even though He is beyond us, He has chosen us. But He didn't just choose us. Hey, you're a part of my team. You're a part of the family. He chose us, as it says in verse 4 and following, He chose us to be holy. There's actually, He has an intent for your life. He has a purpose for your life. And it's to be holy, to be set apart, to be different. There ought to be a marked difference in our life that the world should see and notice. That's the first blessing. The second blessing we talked about last week is that He's adopted us. We talked about how God is tra- transcendent. He's beyond time and space, and, but yet He's also imminent. He, he's right here. He's with us. He's in this personal relationship with us. And it says that He predestined us in verse 5, and it also says in verse 11 that He predestined us. That means He marked us out in advance. He picked you and me, and He said, I want that person right there to be my child. I'm going to adopt them. They are fatherless and they need a father and I'm going to adopt them. They need me. I want them. Let's be together. I'm going to adopt them. A beautiful picture just to hang your hat on. And we got into the whole concept just a a little bit about whether or not all are adopted and everybody. And again, there's so much. Is everybody adopted or is only a few adopted? And I don't believe in universalism, but neither do I believe that God only, His atonement only applies to a limited few. And so there's this, this, this tension that's in Scripture that's hard to balance. And we have to balance it because we're not going to solve it. It's, it's a mystery. Again, Paul uses the word mystery six different times in the Scriptures to deal with the salvation story because it's a mystery. But we can rest assured of this, that whoever comes to Him, John 6 says, that whoever comes to Him, He will, he will not cast out. That he will, he will welcome them into His family. So if you come to Him today, if you say today, I realize that God has chosen me. I realize today that He has called me out and He wants me to be His child. Then I can tell you right now, you are chosen by God. And God wants you to be His child. And He will not cast you out. He will welcome you into His presence. And I like when John was speaking about the imminent return of Christ. And this is a beautiful picture again. In John chapter 14, he records the words of Christ. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. Again, are you blessed? Is your life blessed? Is it full? Is it is it good? Man, I tell you what, if you know that the God of all the universe has chosen through time and gone through space and come down to planet Earth and He has chosen you and you and you and you to be His adopted child and you can walk out of here and just let that roll off your back like water off a duck's back, all I can say is God have mercy on that person. There ought to be something that comes alive inside of you. 
with the reality that God has chosen you. But the blessings don't end there. The good life doesn't end there. You've got to go deeper. And, and it's not just that He's chosen us and adopted us. There's, it's something that had to happen far deeper than that. Number three is the blessing that we want to go to today is that, that we're redeemed by God. We are redeemed by God. That's, that's the third blessing that, that we see in, in, in Scripture, that we're redeemed by God. And I have to admit, in looking at my own life in the mirror and looking at the lives of many people that I talk to on a weekly basis, that we're in a desperate need of desperate measures. Because sometimes our choice meter I think, is a little bit off. Some of the choices that we make in life are a little bit off. We, we lack sometimes clarity. We lack sometimes real depth of perception. We lack, we lack some things sometimes when we're making our choices and decisions. And, and because of that, it's, it's left many of us heartbroken and shipwrecked. We, some turn to chemicals or substance to mask it over. Some go from one relationship to another. Some go job hopping. Some look for the next step up to fulfill them. When's that step up going to say, okay, I'm here, God, thank you. When's enough? We're constantly choosing and we're constantly in need. Why? Because there's a depravity of our own spirit. But somehow in the midst of the emptiness of our own spirit, God reached down through time and He redeemed us. Follow along as I read in verse 7. Here's where we'll pick up today. It says, in Him which is going to be a key phrase we'll come back to later. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery. There's the first occurrence in Ephesians. The mystery of His will according to the purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. The word redemption, what does it mean? It's not a word that we use use a lot today. We might use the word redeem if you redeem a coupon and save 25 cents off a Coke. I mean, you redeemed your coupon. Big deal, 25 cents. What is that? Double coupon at Fred's on certain days of the week. Okay, maybe you go there. And you get double coupons, so now you save 50 cents. The word redemption is is along those lines. But whenever you use it and you understand it in the light of Roman times, in the light of first century times, when there were 6 million slaves, 6 million slaves. And what Paul does in his teaching, in his writings, he uses the metaphor of redemption. And it wasn't redeeming a 25-cent coupon for Coca-Cola. It was more like redeeming, buying a person out of slavery, out of oppression. It was redeeming that individual from the slavery of the life that he is in. And the, the slavery that he is in, according to what Paul is saying here, is the slavery to sin. The slavery to to act on sin and think like sin and, and to make stupid decisions in life and to be bound by sin and to be destined for the punishment of sin and that, that all of the nuances and all of the ways you can think about the effects of sin in our life, we need to understand, I know that this isn't 
pop psychology and self-esteem building, but we need to embrace the reality that I am a sinner and you are a sinner. We are all in the same sinking ship. But the beauty of the story is it doesn't end there. Until we come to that point, we can't be re- we can't understand the redemption of Christ. But what He does is He redeems us from that slavery. He rescues us from that slavery. You were redeemed, and jot this down in your notes, you were redeemed to be forgiven. See, all of those choice-o-meter stupid decisions that we make in life actually are offense against God. And so we can't take them lightly. Those offenses against God cause a separation between us and God, and we become a slave to the sin, slave to the attitudes and actions and substance and, and any other number of things that you can think of that enslave us and control us and consume us. But when He forgave us, he, he, when He set us free, He freed us from the penalty and the mastery of sin. No longer are we mastered by it. We can be free. But now there are three components in this thing that you can't miss. If you want to understand redemption, that one word, how does it happen? He uses three key words. I circled them in my Bible. Blood. He says right there, verse 7, he said, redemption through blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The second word I understand under, underscored or circled was forgiveness. And then it says, to the trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The third word was grace. When you start breaking those down, you see that blood is the payment for our sin. Forgiveness is the result of the payment for our sin. And that grace is the motivation for the payment of our sin. It took that. It took God's blood. I know that's not pretty. And I know I don't fully understand it. Why couldn't He have sent daisies? Why couldn't He have redeemed us through sending dandelions? We all have plenty of those, right? Why couldn't He have chosen something a little bit cushier, a little bit nicer than a whipped Savior hanging bloody and dying on a cross? I don't understand. I didn't create this whole thing called life, all right? I just had to submit to the one who did create this thing called life. And I've got to lean in on him and say, okay, God, you're God, I'm not. And so what was this all about? And the blood was absolutely necessary for the payment of sin. So what Hebrews uh, just affirms again and again, Hebrews 9.22 says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So you've got to have the blood. Nasty, rated R as it may be, we've got to have the blood. The blood. What does the blood do? The blood results in the payment of our sins. So forgiveness is there. What happens? How did that happen? It's because grace. Grace is the motivation for that. Forgiveness is beautiful when you've experienced it. But if you notice the three components of the forgiveness, of redemption, of being in a relationship with God again, listen to this. Grace, blood, Forgiveness. Did you do any of that? Did I do any of that? No. It's what He did. It's not what I do. It's what He did. That's why my absolute dependence on all of my life and all of my hope for all of my life is built in and on the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said it's the power of God unto salvation, the cross is. 
We can't move away from that. You can't find the good life by just having some kind of pop psychology pulled into you. And forgiveness is granted by Almighty God because of that. Lori and I have this little comparison thing going on in our house of the times that we get pulled over by the police. Now, I say that like we're hardened criminals and we spend all of our free time in traffic court, but it's not the case. In, in the past 15 years, I've probably been pulled over three times. But it's, it's, just a, it's just a known thing in our house. When Lori gets pulled over, she's getting a ticket. It doesn't matter what she says or what she does, she's getting a ticket. If I get pulled over, hmm, flip a coin, all right? And she said, how did you do that And when I don't get a ticket? She said, how did you do it? She loves it when I get a ticket. And again, three times in 15 years. So, But there, the, let me tell you about the latest time. The latest time was just about a year and some months ago. I was getting ready to go to Zambia. It was actually the day before going to Zambia. If you remember back a year and so ago, I was going to find memory. And so I was, like the next day, I was already, my mind, my, my life was already on the jet plane heading for Zambia. And so I was cruising to Walmart as fast as I could to pick up the last few minute items and going as fast as I could is the operative phrase there. And as I was going, I was going 40 in a 20 in a construction zone. Yeah, I said the same thing. Uh, to add that little extra on there. And I have no clue. Now, some of you police officers in here might know what that, you're adding it up right there, maybe in your mind, what that was going to cost me. And so I, what I did is I rounded the corner and I topped the hill. And that police officer was probably 100, maybe 150 yards away. And there was no other car between me and them. And so it was not like I could say, oh, it was the other guy. It wasn't me. And so, uh, and so it, was, it was me. And it, immediately when I topped that hill, all of a sudden I went from being on the jet airplane to being back in my car. And it was like, oh, there's a cop. Boom. Put my foot on the brakes. It didn't matter. He was already starting to inch out. You know, that, that feeling you can only hope and that maybe he didn't get He caught me. And in fact, he was setting in such a way that he wanted to catch somebody in the construction zone going double the speed limit. And so as I'm pulling up, I, I, I'm busted. You know, I, the thing is, is that I thought, okay, I could do the normal thing and go you know, like Granny Grunt, go for the rest in front of that cop for the next few moments to try to just maybe it won't pull me over and try to redeem myself by being a good law-abiding citizen for the next 150 yards. Uh, never mind what I was doing before then. And so I, I thought about that, but I thought, I'm busted. He, he's got me. I pull in front of him. I don't even allow him to get out on the road to turn on his humiliating blue lights Though he does go ahead and turn those on after I pull over. And so I pull in front of him and I pull up and he gets out and, and, and I've got the biggest smile on my face. And I said, officer, there is no reason under, under heaven that you should not give me the biggest ticket that you can possibly give me. As I'm handing him my license and registration. And he's a very professional police officer and he's pulling me over, very professional. I said, there's no reason why. I know I was speeding. I was, I was not here. I was somewhere else. I'm going, I'm leaving the country tomorrow and I was not in my car and I apologize for that. And as he's starting to back away towards the car, I just have one, one other thing. If there's any grace, any favor that I could ask of you, please, I mean, I never begged him. I didn't get out on the ground and grovel, but I did beg out the window. And I said, if there's any way that you could just maybe 
And he just backed away. He said, we'll see what we can do. And so he backs away, goes to his car. And, of course, you're fasting and praying for the next five minutes while he's, while he's back in his car uh, doing his thing. And you see him writing and all this kind of stuff. And you think, oh, the longer he writes, the longer, because it's a longer form for a, a ticket than it is for a warning. And, and so finally he comes up to the car and he gives me a warning with a smile. He says, slow it down. And I just said, buddy, I know you could have given me the biggest ticket. And all I can say is thank you. You know what? Every single one of us needs to top a corner at some point in our life. And we need to come face to face with God before it's too late. And we need to come face to face and pull ourselves over to the side of the road. And we need to say, I'm guilty. No more pop psychology. No more feel-good thinking. I'm guilty, God. And if there's any mercy and grace in your throne room for me, would you make it available? That's the beauty of a good life, is when you wake up one day and you realize that you were chosen, that you were adopted, and you were redeemed. And it was absolutely nothing that you did. It was everything that He did. Verse 7 and 8 say it like this, His grace which He lavished on us. He poured it out. And I don't care how deep and dark your sin life has been or is to this moment. I love the phrase that grace greater than our sins. We've sang it for years. The reality is true. That where grace, where sin abounds, the Bible says grace does abound even more. All right? Let's move on. The way we move on to this blessed life, this good life, number four, is that we have an inheritance from God. We have an inheritance from God, and we need to understand that. None of us, maybe in this room, would consider ourselves wealthy. Maybe you don't even consider yourself wealthy at all, but you have been chosen, adopted, and redeemed into the family of the God who creates everything and has made everything. And then you read verses like the riches of God in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. We need to understand that this is available to us. And and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory. Now, I thank God it's not according to my riches. It's according to His riches. Because my riches may be two nickels rubbing together at best. But His riches is what it's according to. His riches in glory is how and where my inheritance is. Now, again, we could cheapen God's riches down to some monetary benevolent God up in heaven and and that, that it's all God's riches is all monetary. And I think that actually cheapens God's riches. His riches go so much further than that. Some people believe that if I give a dollar, God will give me $10. All of a sudden, that's the that's the mathematical equation that people play out. But I want us to understand the portfolio of God. And if we can understand the portfolio of His wealth, we can understand that that same wealth is accessible to us. All right, number one, there is material wealth in God. Whenever you read Haggai chapter 2, verse 8, and it says, silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Everything belongs to God. Every nickel that you own, every every piece of valued material property that you that you are paying for or you own. And I think the sooner we come to that reality, 
that everything, silver, gold, everything of value in my life actually belongs to God? And as soon as I realize that I'm not the owner, but I'm actually just the steward, it makes it so much easier to give. Because I realize that everything I have is because of a generous, benevolent God that He has given to me. And so therefore, when it comes to opportunities to give, I'm freely giving. 10%? What are you talking about, God? You deserve 20%, 30%. All of a sudden, that becomes easy stuff. And I can tell you as a personal testimony in my life of 42 years, for the past 33 of those years, I have been faithful to give a tithe or more in my life, and I don't ever look back, and I never feel like God has shortchanged me in my life. I might have shortchanged God, but He's never shortchanged me. So yes, there is wealth in God, there is material wealth in God, but there's also God's kindness in His wealth. Can't miss that, because that's a part of His wealth. In chapter Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The riches of His kindness... I think we need to camp on that one. I think we need to tap into that one. I have met far too many grumpy Christians, sour Christians, who call themselves followers of Christ, but yet anger and bitterness rule them. And I want to say, go talk to Daddy. He's got a truckload. He's got a treasure chest of kindness. Pull that into your heart. Let that flow out of you. If we only understood what it says in Romans, that it's the kindness of God that leads to redemption. It was the very kindness that put Him on the cross. We need to understand the kindness of God and let that become a motivating factor in our life. Let that become a part of our portfolio. That people are around you in your circles and on your team and in your neighborhood they will begin to mark you off as the kindest person they know. Wow, you've tapped into the wealth of God. Another thing about God's wealth is it goes beyond material, but it is material. It's kindness. It's also wisdom. God's wealth involves wisdom. I think, again, back to the choice meter that sometimes when we look at our lives and the decisions that we make, and sometimes they just fall right on that, that red zone, that, that stupid zone. And I really think the reason is, is that we haven't tapped into the part of the wealth of God's wisdom. Because, oh, the depth and the riches of His wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how instructable are His ways. Wow. You know what the problem is? Is that we have a problem with depth perception. Wisdom gives you depth. Knowledge gives you base. Wisdom enables you to see further than knowledge. Wisdom enables you to see further backwards and learn from life and mistakes and other people's errors and other people's successes. Wisdom helps you to be able to pull through the layers and not just think, oh, that guy got lucky. That guy was wise in the way they lived their life. It gives you depth forward. It gives you depth back. It gives you peripheral vision. All of a sudden, wisdom now brings clarity to life like nothing else. Oh, the riches of His wisdom. And the thing is, is that God, in all of His wealth, the treasure chest of heaven says, it's opened us in James chapter 1, verse 5. Jot that verse down because He tells us that if we ask of wisdom, He will give it to us freely. Wisdom is a part of the wealth of God. 
But there's another thing about God's wealth that we cannot miss. And it's God's grace wealth. And we just read it a few moments ago. It talks about the riches of His grace. The riches of His grace. And how He lavished it on us. That's how we became followers of Jesus. It's because of His grace. Verse 11 and 12 says it like this. Here's where it says we have an inheritance. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to His purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. We have an inheritance from God. And everything that God has, He's opened up to us, His wisdom, His kindness, His material, it is available for us, His grace. You know, there's a statement by by F.F. Bruce, probably one of the greatest theologians, New Testament theologians of the 20th century. He said this, grace is a quality which requires personal relationships for its exercise. You need to jot that one down. Because for the past two weeks, I have been rereading that statement again and again and again. And you know, if it weren't for relationships, there would be no need for grace. Think about it. Because there's relationships and because we're all fallen, because we're all desperately in need of God's intervention, redemption, we talked about that earlier. Because we're all like that, we're all broken people living in a broken world and hurt people hurt people, if you haven't figured that part out yet. Hurt people, hurt people. And it's only because of that that we need grace. And all of a sudden, grace becomes a necessary necessity of life whenever we live in relationship with people. But what happens to, to us when we have this inheritance? Why did He give us this inheritance? To bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. He gave us the inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of His will, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. That we might be the ones who are the ones bringing glory to God. And how do we do that? By being rich in grace. By being rich in wisdom. By being rich in kindness. By using the wealth that God has given us in a proper fashion, in a God-honoring fashion. The last, and I'm sure it's not the last, but I'm sure Paul needed to move on. But it's at least the fifth in this, in this, in this doxology to God that, that, that shows of what it means to live the good life. And it means that we have been sealed by God. God has sealed us. He has sealed us. When you come to verse 13 and 14, go back there. Guys, go back there in this slide. I want you to see this. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, believed in Him and were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until they acquire possession of it to the praise and the glory. We have been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. To understand that sealing, I went back in Scriptures and looked at the different times that the word sealed was used to try to get an understanding of this word and what he was meaning by being sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's three different ways that I saw it used. One was that it was rendered to render something secure, to make something tight. They used it in Matthew to talk in Matthew 27, verse 62, to talk about sealing up the grave. 
the tomb, all right? Another one, he's already got it up there. Authentic, uh, it authenticates as genuine, all right? It means, like in Nehemiah, when something would come from the king, that it was legitimate, that it was right, that it was, this was, this is real. The last use that I, that I found was that it denotes ownership. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, it uses that, that metaphor. To render secure, to authenticate as genuine, to denote ownership. Now think about this for just a moment. Here's your life. Remember we talked about it last week? What would I re-gift my life towards? What would I want it to be? So here's your life. If God has chosen you, if God has adopted you, if God has redeemed you, if you have the inheritance of God in your life, He has also put the seal of the Spirit of God on you. You are secure. You have been rendered as His, okay? You have been rendered as secure in Him. You have been authenticated that that child, Mike McDaniel, he is my child. He is my child. And in Romans, it even talks about that in Romans 8, 9, that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So the Spirit of God inside of me makes me complete. It denotes ownership. When you come to this this text, you come to this passage, you find in here, you find security. You find holiness in our lives. You find a sense of belonging. You find that we can bring glory to God through His inheritance. We find forgiveness. This is what makes life great and awesome. There's one reality about all of Paul's teaching. He mentions it 169 times. And he says, in Christ or in Him. 169 times. If you remember when I went back to last week, I said that this good life is not going to come through some sensory overload into your life. However the senses stimulate you. New car, new job, new house, new clothes, new lose weight. Whatever your New Year's resolution, that will not bring you the good life. It will bring you momentary satisfaction. But there's one thing that we're going to see throughout the book of Ephesians, and you'll see it throughout Paul's writings, is that 169 times, Paul says again and again and again, the good life is in Him. The good life is in Christ. The good life, the good life is in Him. It's in Christ. Nine times in 14 verses. You have homework to do between now and next week. Verse 1 to verse 14, you go through there and underscore every time it says in Him or in Christ. Nine times in 14 verses, he says it again and again and again. We've got to unpack that. What does that mean? It means so much more than what this world can offer us. I read something online a number of years ago, back in 99, and it it was an internet chain letter that went around, and we call that spam now, I think. But here's what it said. It said that the paradox of our time in history is that we spend more, but we have less. We buy more, but enjoy it less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more conveniences, but less time. 
more medicine, but less wellness. We read too little, watch TV too much, we pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions, but reduced our values. These are our times. These are the times of tall men and short characters, steep prophets and shallow relationships. These are the days of two incomes, but more divorces, of fancier homes, but broken homes. Fancier houses, but broken homes. We've learned how to make a living, but not a life. We've added years to our life, but not life to our years. We've cleaned up the air, but we've polluted the soul. I don't know who wrote that. but They had tremendous wisdom into our culture. And I give a warning sign to all of us today that if we are going to experience the good life, it will have to look at where our ladder is leaning because there's a whole lot of opportunities out there that promise a whole lot of stuff, but it leaves a polluted soul. And when you've been chosen, you've been adopted, and you've been redeemed, and you've experienced the inheritance of God, and you are sealed by God, there's nothing more beautiful than living in Christ and Christ living in you. Because the sad part is, again, is not only that you'd have yourself leaning against the wall, the wrong wall, but the second one, what I start with, is that you would be so close and it'd be all around you, but you not know it. The good life. That literally you would have Christ beside you. You would have Christ around you. You would have all these believers in your life. And you would have a, a church that loves you and loves your children. And you would have it, you'd have Christ everywhere around you. But He's not in you. And if He's not in you, you'll not know the good life that Paul speaks of. And that so many people know, and so few, excuse me, so many people are looking for, but so few people know. Would you pray with me? As we pray today, I just want you to just take a moment and examine your portfolio. The portfolio of your own soul. Are you chosen by God? Are you adopted? by Him. Do you know Him like that? Is it well with your soul? The altar will be open today. You just come as you need to. And you may say to God, God, I'm rich in so many ways, but not in You. I'm full in so many ways, but not in You. My life is more of fury than it is of the fullness of God. Lord, I want the good life. And I want it in you, Jesus. In Christ. In Him. Lord Jesus, make it well with our soul. Make it well with our soul.